Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence, Jason Wallace, and me, Mike Nicoletti. For the uninitiated, Telltales are tiny bits of string that sailors use to read the wind on their sails. Each week, we discuss Telltales that help us invest, namely the energy markets, macroeconomics, and technology. The following conversation is intended for informational purposes only. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. The host may or may not hold positions in the securities mentioned. On oil pricing, we talked the last couple of Wednesdays about China. I would say the main thing about China is how low will the growth in China be given the way Xi has organized the power which resides in the chairman of the Communist Party, which is him, and the president, which is him, and the head of the military, which is him, but there are six other members of the standing committee, and they're all chief people. I'm sure everyone's seen references to that in the news last Saturday when the, the party congress was concluded, and we've talked about the impact on ships and equipment, it's certainly going to have an impact on oil. If it is going to be the case that China, rather than growing at 6% a year, and they announced after the end of the party Congress that they grew 3.5% in the most recent quarter or month, I forget what it was, but if they really don't care about doing 6 or 7% real growth, that will be bad for oil demand. That will also be bad for iron ore demand, for copper demand, for lead coal demand. And it appears to be in the, the, the way she has organized this, that appears to be where they're headed. Yeah. The, um, for the last three decades, China wanted to grow 6 or 7% a year because they had a big population and they wanted to bring them out of rural existence and into working in more urban environments. And it was to, a part of creating a good life and improving life for all billion, 200 million Chinese. But it looks as though their priorities are different now and that will not be good for oil or of the commodities. The other thing that I'll note in, in the material we review every Wednesday is Tesla, which we've covered before, is actually doing pretty darn well. We mentioned when we were talking to Tesla, they have a better balance sheet than GM Ford. And, you know, they had a reasonable third quarter. And if you, the 250 million cars in the United States, in some number of years, somewhere between half a decade and a decade, 50 million of those 250 million cars, the battery cars, that is not going to be good for gasoline demand. Gasoline is half the oil barrel. So either in the near term when it's kind of hard to figure out what China's doing or the five to six several year period when you have to, you know, the oil market have to cope with the fact that 20% of the cars in the United States will be battery cars. And, and those percentages will carry over to Europe and also to China and India. Now, against that is there's absolutely 
really low, low, low investment, reinvestment in the oil business, whether it's OPEC countries or non-OPEC countries. So what I think I'd posit with oil is, especially with gasoline, we'll start to have declining demand, which kind of alarming if you hold company assets and companies that produce oil, but your supply may be going down too. And of course, the three largest producers in the world, the United States, Saudi Arabia, and Russia, and the Russian production of 10 million barrels a day has already declined a little bit because they're totally, uh, you know, with sanctions, they can't get anything in from outside the country. So how to think about oil? What is the average price of oil the next several years? I think something in the $80 range is probably going to be an average with a range that might range up to 95 or close to 100, maybe down to 60. Um, Will recession cause demand to go down? Yes. Or will the companies that can produce over their quota or up to their quota in, in uh, OPEC, will they curtail production? Yes. There's some great articles in the paper this morning. I think it was the best one in the Times about how the Saudi kind of toyed with the Biden administration. Is it a bad business? No, it's not a bad business. Is it an undervalued business now? Yes, it is undervalued. I mean, the the third quarter results are going to be very, very strong. And I think that most companies producing oil will probably wind up trading for more uh, in the, the last month or two of this year than they than they were. You know, I, I think new highs might be set in these companies. How to think about longer term? That's why I keep coming back to Tesla as being the leader in battery cars. It may be that if you have some amount of money, in oil, it might be good to have like half in oil and half in battery cars. Now, Tesla's still coming down, and, and it's a very controversial. Elon Musk is very controversial. You have this Twitter thing, which he apparently is going to try to close this lead, where you know he's paying, or he and the people around him are paying $50 to whatever it is. It's probably the only list, 25 to 30. So uh, having the prime mover in, Tesla have that kind of economic loss. That's not good. But to switch over to natural gas, natural gas is much lower. I mean, the near month is like five and a half dollars down from eight and a half or something. We're in a real wide natural gas. Interestingly enough, so is LNG. LNG, if you're talking about the next two weeks, is like $14 in Europe because all the facilities in Europe are filled. What happens if, it, you know, that same cargo? delivered in the middle of December is $30. So you've got a temporary oversupply of LNG. Natural gas in our country, we've had more production than we kind of expected, especially from the Permian. The hub out there in West Texas is Waha. Waha is trading at negative numbers because there's repair work going on on some of the pipelines. So if you have an MCF of gas in Waha and you don't have firm transportation somewhere and, and you have to do something with it. You can't flare it. You'll pay someone a dollar to put it into storage in Waha, you know, which is kind of incredible. That number, you know, in a $5, $5.50 Henry Upmark, it should be four and a half or five dollars. So there are definitely some strains there, some overproduction. Impact of a U.S. recession on natural gas, not so much uh, of an issue, I don't think. Now, why is this book so interesting? First of all, it's a good read. Second of all, it traces quantitative easing, 
which is building a Fed balance sheet up by, by buying bonds, about two-thirds U.S. government bonds and one-third mortgage bonds. Why was quantitative easing long enough? It was thought up, well, in the fall of 08, say November, December, when Lehman went down, the Fed Reserve went to rescue. The central bank is set up to go to the rescue. In other words, when people can't, financial institutions can't roll their liabilities, they bring the collateral into the Fed Reserve, the Fed Reserve lends money on it. That's not quantitative easing. That's a, that's an event, a capital markets event. Coming out of the 08, 09, Bernanke, who just got the Nobel Prize, came up with the idea that <laughs> they were having trouble getting the economy to grow. And we ought to use quantitative easing as a tool, not a crisis tool, but as a tool right now. Why did Bernanke come up with that idea? Well, he was a student of the Depression. And Milton Friedman, and I forget the name of his co-author, came up with this book that said, the Depression wouldn't have happened except that the Federal Reserve clamped down on reserves and money supply and whatnot. That it would have been over much quicker. And general acknowledgement is that great, the Depression ended because World War II started. You know, and there's, there's some truth to that. So Bernanke argued for quantitative easing. The other members of the open market, they resisted. And, uh, and in fact, Jay Powell resisted. But he got it through, and and you know, so the Fed balance sheet went from like two trillion at say 2010 when he got quantitative easing started. It grew to about uh, four and a half trillion, and then it was on its way down to four. In September 2019, they were taking it down. They had a particular Monday when the repo rate set in New York went to 12 percent, when the Fed funds rate was only two percent. That was a lack of liquidity, and the bank had to, the central bank had to address that. But it was a sign of trouble. In March of 20, when COVID was going to close down the economy, that's when they started increasing. So the, the U.S. government borrowed $7 trillion during that period. At the same time, the, the Federal Reserve was buying $5 trillion of bonds. Now, the governors are independent. They have to get that balance sheet down. It's horrible, but they were still adding to the balance sheets February of 22. Then the first three months, they decided to take it down by $30 billion a month, even though they said if they put it in runoff, it'd be $100 billion a month. In other words, don't reinvest the coupons and the maturities. In September was their first month at doing $100 billion. All of you on the phone, if you read the book, and this includes, like, you have to promise that you won't get spooked. It'll make you much more informed about central banks, but it, it, I, I come out of reading the book or scanning the book, not more spooked than when I went in. And so, but what does it mean? It means, as we've been saying for most of this year, if you have cash on the sidelines, better to wait to deploy it. If you own something or whatever you own, make sure it has a good balance sheet so it doesn't have refinancing risk. It doesn't need to issue stock. It doesn't mean to say a the company, the average company I own is off 25 or 30%. And, you know, I don't own companies that are over leveraged. So, I mean, it doesn't protect you, but, but don't commit cash in this environment uh, unless you just want to take like a research position. That advice or that way of thinking about it will remain, you know, whether you read the book or you don't read the book. And it's not just the Fed fund, getting the Fed funds rate up to be more than the inflation rates. It's this 
problem that the Federal Reserve has, quantitative tightening. Now, what the market is assuming, the reason you've had a bounce from the lows is that things, things will break and, and the Federal Reserve will have to relax. And, and you know, that's what market participants, the far as I can see, are assuming. Maybe that'll happen. Generally, it does happen. But so far, the capital markets have been fairly resilient. The Bank of England had a problem, but that related to the way pensions and pension funds and had done this leverage stuff and the collateral calls and whatnot. That, but, but the other countries around the world now, <clears throat> the U.S. dollar keeps getting stronger. Japan has a problem because, you know, their yen has gotten too weak. They have the capacity to cope with that problem. So, so far, they're good. Not a time to sell things you own, but as I say, cash right on the sidelines. And one of the things we've done, now here I take more than 15 minutes, one of the things we've decided to do, having covered the big tech companies and chip equipment companies and the chip companies and whatnot, huge, huge help from uh, Mike and Jason, who really know this stuff. Now we've decided to cover other companies under the theory that you can know the video pretty well, and the, probably the best thing to do is sit on your hands now. Don't sell your position, but don't add more. And in order to help us, all of us, sit on our hands, we decide we'll we'll vector off and look at other companies. So today we're we're looking at uh, Netflix and Disney, and next week we're going to look at Verizon and AT and T, and then the week after that we're going to look at T Mobile and Dish, and then we're going to keep going looking at a couple of companies a week. Now, we may not find anything that's invested that we think it, we want to invest in or is investable, but at least it'll help us see how how things are going to work out in China. I mean, they, they reappointed the standing committee, but now the person who runs a central bank in China has to be replaced. I mean, there's all kinds of shuffling that's going to go on. Better to stay relaxed and don't, don't act on things look in other areas of uh, of our stock market and get, get more informed about these companies. And with that, Netflix and Disney, I knew Netflix a little bit. I'd really never looked at Disney. One of the things I did was to compare me to uh, Amazon under the theory that Amazon was is a competitor to Netflix and really competitor to Disney because Amazon Prime's probably trying to build up now. The interesting thing, when you line these companies up, is Netflix is the only one with cash flow after CapEx. And when you look at these companies, it's not just CapEx, it's based what they spend on content, on new movies, new serials, TV shows, and whatnot. That's an improvement on Netflix. Netflix used to spend considerably more than cash flow. And, but your goal is to have a free cash return. You don't really have free cash return in Disney. You don't have free cash return in Amazon. I mean, Amazon CapEx is running at the rate of $65 billion a year. So, I mean, that, that's really quite extraordinary. All these companies are growing. Clearly, Amazon has had trouble adjusting to the pandemic not being gone, and they, they just overspent on warehouses and logistics and everything. But to get back to the subject today, Netflix is straining. It requires internet connections. One of the reasons we're going to look at Verizon, AT&T is for that, and then T-Mobile and, and Dish for that. When you're technically able, as Mike is and Jason is, and most of the people I imagine on the phone are way more technically able than 
and I am, you're just doing things differently. Mike and I had a discussion about, you know, because Google also announced results, which were disappointing. Mike, why don't you try to replicate some of the stuff uh, we discussed this morning in terms of how you and Jason are, are basically consuming sports events or, uh, or news or shows that your kids watch or whatnot. It, it really is a new world out there. And Netflix is trying to take advantage of that. But over to you, Mike. So this is an evolution in the telecommunications industry because previously cable provided the means and the one path through which you could consume content through a television. And it used to be your cable operator was the, uh, well, their monopoly, a true monopoly in that they have the ability to decide what content you receive and what price you're going to pay for it. Cable did really well over the years. And the really fantastic thing that happened to work out really well for cable companies is that that same cable that they laid in the ground also ended up being very good for transmitting data back and forth in a two-directional manner. So as we've moved to the internet, different business models are popping up in order to serve these same, same customers. So today you can and I'm sure many people on the phone don't pay for cable. They just pay for internet and instead maybe subscribe to some services over the top in order to replace cable. One of those services might be Netflix. Another might be Disney. The one that Hunt and I spent some time talking about this morning is YouTube TV. That's essentially a cable package that both Jason and I subscribe to where you can get live sports and live news and basically all the things that you expect out of cable in an over-the-top package. Another company that provides that service is Dish Network through a product called Sling TV. Again, same concept. You're using the internet, essentially just a dumb pipe in which to transmit content over-the-top OTT, if you will. So, for example, if your ESPN, which is a very important part of Disney, the sports content, uh, and you've been charging Comcast uh, or Cablevision or Charter or whatnot so much per month, which they collect, you're kind of removed or replaced because you can, as Mike says, you can get that over the top through YouTube. So it's a real challenge for Disney. And Netflix, of course, doesn't have any physical assets to speak of, I believe they, they're very large customers of Amazon Web Services because they, they deliver through Amazon now. They may have edge servers and whatnot to try to maintain quality of service. It seems to me that everyone that, that we've discussed or might discuss is a, a bit at risk from YouTube and YouTube type delivery. I think having spent that time on chips and chip equipment, because after all, the chips are serving uh, people using the internet with their PCs or, or iPhones or whatnot. I think this is a really interesting way to, one, look for good new investments, and two, understand better the macro things that will affect almost every uh, tech company we could possibly think of. 
think we want to draw Jason out on this, but if you try now, which is very difficult to pick who is going to have more market share between Netflix and, and Disney and Amazon Prime, you might at this point pick YouTube, but uh, it's uh, not the kind of thing that you can make investments about. But I mean, just from a technical point of view, if, if we've got Jason on the line, you have any commentary on how you pick between those four? You're right. Uh, YouTube provides a great product. I think it's a it's a really interesting time to compare Netflix and Disney specifically because they have right around the same number of subscribers today. They they both have 221 million subscribers. That in Disney's case, that's across three different streaming platforms. They have Disney Plus, ESPN Plus, and Hulu. Clearly, we saw in the last couple quarters, Netflix subscriber growth has, has kind of stalled. It's picking back up recently, and, and Disney's trajectory is still um, more, than, more than twice that Netflix ever had, their, their growth trajectory. So I think of, of all of them today, I'd probably pick Disney. I think Mike has a, a great description on, on the, the difference in the two business models, but looking at content-wise, um, Netflix is is in a process where they always have to, to update their content to keep their viewers, to keep their subscribers. Whereas Disney has, they're building brands. Um, they have Star Wars, Marvel, all the Disney classics. And, and I'm sure everyone knows that children will watch the same thing repeatedly. So they can recycle a lot of the content and they have the brands that they can monetize a lot more effectively. Right. And you kind of touched on the difference in the business models. Netflix's business model, which is pretty much the same as YouTube TV's, it's aggregation theory. And I'll provide a link to this if you want to dig a little deeper on it. But the concept is, look at Facebook's business model. What they're doing is they're aggregating eyeballs. And they, in their case, they don't have to produce content. Their content cost is zero because people post on Facebook and for free people Facebook is able to monetize those eyeballs. In the case of Netflix, they have to pay for that content, whether it's through a licensing arrangement or financing the production of original shows and movies. Disney comes from a prior generation where if you look at the history of Disney, they, they really struggled in the beginning. They'd produce these films and they would not make as much money as they spent in order to produce these early cartoons back in the 60s or 50s or whatever it was and that's basically the core of hollywood right it's there's a there's a creative talent combined with capital and you take a risk in order to produce something and hopefully you'll be able to sell it netflix has done a pretty in, I, I struggle with their business model because i i'm a consumer as well so i have my own biases but it, you objectively could say they've done a pretty good job of acquiring content and monetizing it to point out in their financials. If you're looking at their quarterly reports, you can see how much money they're spending on content each quarter. It's a lot of money. And then they amortize that over a period of four years, which is a relatively short period of time. The accounting rules actually allow you to amortize that for up to 10 years. And so it's in a way you could look at Netflix and say, they're accumulating a large base of content and they're amortizing it very quickly so that they always operate at a loss. 
so they're not paying taxes. So it's tax efficient in that perspective. But then one has to ask the question is, is that content actually worth anything? Would you rather have the content produced for the same amount of money coming from Disney or from Netflix? And nobody really knows the answer to that. Are the shows that Netflix is producing and is owning, are those going to have long-term lifetime value? Or as we kind of assume the products coming out of Disney have much longer lifetime franchise values, if you will. So I, I think there's a play there as well, but you're talking about two relatively different business models. And then you see Disney, who's traditionally been a license and then monetized in a bunch of different ways, whether it's parks and cruises and, uh, and products and, and a whole bunch of licensing avenues. Also going the aggregation route through Hulu and Disney Plus. So there's a lot of moving parts to this market, but in a way, the most important thing to recognize is that this is not a monopoly market, right? The consumer can very easily switch from one product to the next, or they can pay for both. And we haven't had enough competition yet to find out what it takes for people to move. We saw some really negative numbers in Netflix a few quarters ago. They seem to be back to growing again as of this most recent quarter. But at some point, there'll be saturation. And I think what long-term ends up happening is more bundling because the nature of content is that it should be licensed as many places as possible so that it's essentially generating the maximum amount of revenue you possibly can. If it's just housed in one spot and there's only one way to reach it, that's not necessarily an efficient way to monetize the asset. All that is to say that I think this market is still developing. I think Disney's in a really unique position. As Hunt said, neither of them really produce much cash flow. I don't have a ton of conviction that either of these are really going to produce outsized profits over the long run. Yeah, that, that may be a little severe. I have to admit, I, I, I agree with Mike, but it may be a little severe. And as we cover these companies, I think we're, I think we're going to step up in some, some one stage, we're going to cover two companies. So in, in a 52-week year, we'll probably cover 100 companies, and we will do some catch-up. I mean, one of the catch-ups today is, even though Google has this point results are down five or six percent, but but and part of the one of the disappointing parts of it was advertising in YouTube slowed down. But with the insights you get from just going through the different streaming services, one of the things YouTube is doing, maybe doing, is trying to get more subscription customers and less revenues from ads. We will, as we try to chart what companies we're picking up, we'll try to look for the interrelationships. And by looking at a wide range of, you know, wider range of companies, hopefully we'll become better investors on the things where Mike said, but very well said, where we think you have a prospect or outsider. And with that, thanks for everyone's attention. And we'll be on next, next Wednesday. Take care.
Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.